Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to Tune In, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and I'm here today with Alice Hoffman. Alice Hoffman is an author born in New York City. She grew up in Long Island, a distinguished novelist. She has published a total of 23 novels, three books of short fiction, and eight books for children and young adults. Her recently published novel, The Museum of Extraordinary Things, is set in New York in 1911. Welcome, Alice. Hi, how are you? Well, thanks. I should start off by saying I'm a huge fan of your work. Oh, thank you. Um, so you can imagine that I was both intrigued and really excited when um, several weeks ago I got a call here at the Yiddish Book Center from a book reviewer, and she was calling with a fact-checking question of, um, that came into play in her review. And she brought it to my attention that um, in working on the book, you'd found your grandfather's Yiddish writing on the Yiddish Book Center's online Steven Spielberg Digital Yiddish Library, yeah. um, and that you went on to have his work translated so that you could read the essays and writing um, as you began the research for the book. And I'm really curious to hear what you were able to sort of glean from your grandfather's writing. And his name is Chaim Kerfeld. Yes, that's it. Well, you know, I'm so grateful to the Yiddish Book Center because I, it was really a miracle for me to find his book. Um, he wrote, you know, essays and poems for newspapers in New York City, but he died very young, and his friends put together um, an edition of his works, and I think they printed maybe 10 or 15 copies. I had a copy, which I had never read because it was in Yiddish, and somehow when I moved, I lost the copy. And I was really brokenhearted. I felt like I would never, I would never get to know my grandfather. And I just, um, my uncle had been to the Yiddish Book Center. He had taken a class there. He also um, is very interested in Yiddish and, and teaches a Yiddish class. And he told me to check, check at the library, at, at, and I found it. And it, it felt like a miracle to me to find that book. And did you find that as you were beginning to imagine this story, and um, or? Did this sort of happen all at the same time? Well, I always, you know, this was kind of something that I carried around with me, that I always wanted to have the book translated to know what his life was like. And when I decided to write a book that took place in 1911, because I was interested in the Triangle Factory fire, I thought this is the perfect time for me to know his story, and that's when I started to look around. And I know that you draw on the lives of both of your grandfathers in the telling of this, um, mm -hmm. and I... I was curious. Um, I devoured the book, by the way, in um, two sittings a Thank few weekends you. ago. Um, <laughs> and I'm wondering how their live stories kind of played into that larger narrative. Oh, uh, very strongly. I mean, one of the, the most interesting thing for me was the translation of my grandfather had written an autobiographical essay, which was published in the foreword. Uh, the newspaper um, out of New York on the Lower East Side, and he wrote about his personal experience, which I had never known about. I knew he was very political. He was um, a member of the union. He was a member of the Workmen's Circle. Um, he was very involved with the Sholem Aleichem schools that my mother and uncle both went to, but I didn't really know what his story was. And when I read his story, I was really kind of stunned. And his story became the heart of my character, Eddie, um, who is a garment worker uh, as a boy, it became the heart of my character story. Well, I'll, yeah, sort of, um, I wanted to explore Eddie. You have two central characters, Eddie Cohen and Coralie Sardi. Mm -hmm. And 
Um, my takeaway is that Eddie seems to straddle two worlds. He's a young Russian immigrant. He runs away from his father, who um, they live on the Lower East Side um, in a very orthodox community. And it seems as though the conflict of this decision really challenges and plagues Eddie as he begins to navigate this new world. Um, Yes, very much so. And I think, you know, it is the immigrant story and still is and certainly, you know, was when, you know, my grandparents were come, had come to New York was that you can reinvent yourself and how much do you want to get disposed of the past um, and start a new life because there are painful aspects of the past. And that was why I felt like unless I read my, what my grandfather's life had been like, I couldn't really get to that painful aspect of why my character was running away. And when I read my, the, my grandfather's um, essay, he wrote that he was working in a factory in Poland, actually, and worked, you know, like 14-hour days, and it was summer, and he, you know, was, was exhausted, and he heard the, the laughter of the boss's children. And he went outside, and he saw them uh, swimming in a lake and playing in a lake. And at that moment, he had a political conversion. And at that time, he was eight years old. So that is what happens really pretty much to my character, Eddie. He has a political conversion. Um, but unlike my grandfather, he goes and confronts the children of the bosses, and that confrontation really changes all of their lives forever. And, and it's interesting that um, I don't want to give too much away, but water um, plays into aspects of Eddie's life. Very much so. And I think, you know, that idea of, you know, my grandfather standing there as a boy watching these children playing while he was already had to be a man. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is, it, it, you know, it's his story, but it's also like the immigrant story. And going around the Lower East Side even today, you know, you have the feeling that the story is being played out again and again and again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I also thought that Coralie's character also is, um, relates to an immigrant. She lives in a community of freak show performers, mm -hmm. and it, it seems that she's at once at home within this community, and at the same time, she hopes to escape the place. And again, it feels like the story of an immigrant who lives in a world both separated from their surroundings and also um, a world that beckons them in. And, and how do they find peace with that or make that yeah. decision where to yeah. stay? I mean, totally true. I think, you know, the immigrant story, especially, you know, the, from, from my uh, point of view, you know, the Russian Jewish immigrant story and also the women's, the women's story at the mm -hmm. time are very similar because there were very few rights. And, you know, what was interesting also to me about the Triangle Factory fire is that so many of the workers who died were young women, some, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old. And so Coralie is also a young woman who's looking for her identity, who doesn't feel that she has any rights, and who it's kind of a coming-of-age story for her, for her to take control of her own life. Yeah, and, um, and she triumphs over her keeper as well right. um, in, in that way. Um, and I'm just going to read something before I ask you a question, if I may. Sure. Uh, uh, there's a passage that said, I know we lived among extraordinary things, but perhaps more importantly, in extraordinary times. People may or may not remember the heroes and the villains of our day, but all that brave among us did, and all that they were remains with us still. We had a year in which everything changed, when the world shifted and became something new. We no longer expected cruelty or mistreatment. We expected more. And 
and you very deliberately, I've read and you acknowledge, um, set the novel in New York City in 1911. Mm-hmm. And what drew you to that particular year? Well, you know, one thing, there were, the novel is really framed between two fires, the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire um, in March and the Dreamland Fire in Coney Island in May. And, it, it, you know, it really, those two fires, in a way, changed everything. The cultural landscape, it changed the labor movement, was really activated by what happened there. And, you know, I just felt like it was a time... For me, I think growing up, it was like 1969 when everything exploded, everything lit on fire, and the world changed. And I feel like that was what happened in 1911 as well. And, you know, what happened with the ILGWU and the labor movement, you know, changed everything for American workers, not so much for workers around the world, but, you know, for American workers, you know, they they began to have rights where they weren't locked in to the rooms where they worked and, you know, working for ridiculously small amounts. Um, So, you know, there was a fire, everything burned, but everything also changed and came to life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was in some ways liberating, um, excuse that expression. Yeah, Yeah. well, it it definitely was in terms of of the labor movement. It Mm -hmm. it was just an explosion. And, And in terms of dreamland, you know, it's so interesting to me because I had spent time in Coney Island growing up. My um, grandparents lived in Brooklyn, but it was a very different Coney Island. It was a very depressed um, 60s and 70s Coney Island, and all the beauty and the wonder of it had was gone. It's now coming back, and Brooklyn is having this amazing renaissance. But it was very interesting for me to write about this time when that when Sigmund Freud came to America. He said, you know, Coney Island is the only interesting thing in America. <laughs> it's true. I, um, I have these very strange uh, memories of going to visit my great aunt Lena in Coney Island, uh-huh. and in my mind, she lived below the um, what do you call it? The uh, roller coaster. Oh, the roller coaster, which I think is from um, a movie or something. But anyway, I think there was a Woody yes. Allen. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know why I associated the two, but it's true. It was it was a sad place when I was growing up. Yes, yes, me too. And but that's not the way it began. You know, mm-hmm. began is this miraculous place, and I think now is having this you know great resurgence where you know younger people are going there, and it's it's really the things that were treasures that were just you know completely trashed are now. I think um, now I think people understand that this is you know our cultural history. Well, yeah, I wonder on this journey of writing the book and accessing your grandfather's writing if if on a personal level it provided you with um, a Jewish story that you feel belongs to you as um, both a writer and, uh, you know, as a descendant of your grandparents. Yeah, well, I definitely feel, you know, I always, although I, you know, my grandfather died when I was three, Mm -hmm. but I always knew that I had a grandfather who was a writer and wanted to be a writer, and that writing was very important to him. So, I, you know, that's kind of like a family story, a family history that you carry with you. And it kind of informed everything that I did and thought was that, you know, writing was important, you know, in our family. Books were really important in our family. And I think that allowed me to have something of a dream, you know, first as a reader and then as a writer. And one other thing I'm curious about is there are really beautiful um, passages where you, um, as the character, are remembering what the old world was like. Um, and were any of those sort of picked up from the writing of your grandfather? 
Well, actually, they were really the stories of my grandmother. Oh. And I always feel like, you know, I grew up on fairy tales, but fairy tales really began as, you know, as tales told by grandmothers to granddaughters mm-hmm. and grandsons. And, and so my, grandma, my first stories were really my grandmother's stories about Russia and about growing up um, in a small shuttle and um, by a river whose name she didn't remember that froze almost all year long and how she used to have to go down to this river because she was the oldest child and she was afraid of wolves. And it became this, this fairy tale to me, her life. And wanting to get out of there, <laughs> you know, wanting to come to America was like a gigantic theme in the lives of, you know, all of the older generation in my family. And, you know, I think it's a very modern story because I think it goes on and on. You know, this desire to come to New York, this desire to come to America, and, you know, especially for Jews around the world, um, to come here where you can be free. Mm-hmm. I think you tell on you yeah, you inform a very large, as I say, narrative um, that one can relate to on many levels. I, mean, I just, it, it was really um, an interesting, wonderful book to escape into. Um, oh, thank you. And um, I guess the other question I had is, um, how did the telling of the story play out for you? Well, you know, at first, you know, when I'm writing a novel, for me, I never remember how to write a novel. So I have to, even though I've written quite a few of them, I have to relearn the whole process. And I always feel like, you know, I don't know who that other person was who wrote all these novels, but it wasn't me, and I don't know how to do it. So, um, you know, I begin, you know, the historical novel with doing a lot of research and just, you know, kind of random writing and, and collecting facts, you know, about the natural world and things like that. And then I start to kind of formulate the characters in the world. And um, for me, the story was really just going to be about Eddie and his relationship with his father and with the trying to escape his past and the world of the Lower East Side, trying to fit in as a New Yorker rather than as an, an immigrant and as a Jew. And um, one day as I was writing it, he was he was in Upper New York, which was pretty much the country um, in 1911. And a young woman swam by in the Hudson River. I had no idea who she was or what she was doing there. And I just kind of followed her and realized that there was another character. And this this was a story about the two of them and how their fates were really interwoven. Yeah, um, and and how, yeah, they worked, they worked out a lot of things, I think, um, between them. Yeah, yeah I think so, resolution. too. Yeah, it's funny because they don't actually meet until until mm-hmm. very far along in the book, but and yet they're you can feel that they're fated to meet. They're they're on this course where they're they're both involved with this missing girl, and that they're it's in a way it's kind of an emotional mystery. Yeah, um, I also loved um, reading about, um, and I don't think I'm giving anything away here. Um, how Eddie is employed for a brief amount of time looking for the. Um, Lost Husbands? The Lost Husbands, you know, it's yeah. funny because there that is one character that, there are a few characters that are based on real characters, real historical characters, and one of them is this character of Hockman, who um, who was a finder of, of lost husbands, and there were many of them, and I think in the foreword they had kind of a gallery of lost men or missing men, because men would come over here. Um, to try to get jobs and make a living and, and, and then bring their families over, but then they would disappear into kind of their new American lives. 
Yeah, we we had a um, a visiting exhibit here at the center recently, and it was um, images that were based on the Bintel briefs. It's for a graphic novel that Liana Fink is working on, and she had images which were you know from the lost husband's gallery and uh, so then you know to be familiar with that to be introduced to that whole concept and then to read about it in the book was like wow this really existed it was so interesting because i i first read about hockman i first found out about him was that i went to an exhibit of at the jewish museum in new york city of jewish marriage contracts which are extremely beautiful documents and one of them was signed by him by Hockman, and it said the Seer of Rivington Street. And I thought, well, this is funny. I, I, you know, do Jews and magic go together? And you know, I'm always, I always feel like they don't. And then I'm always surprised. And then I think, of course, Houdini. You know, of mm-hmm. course, magic is part of, part of, of being Jewish. And um, so it was very, very interesting to kind of find out about him. Yeah, there's so much that weaves its way through here that you know informs an understanding. Um, so I thank you so much for visiting with us today, um, and I hope all of our listeners will run out, if they haven't already read the book, um, and read it. As I say, it kind of got me for two days of solid reading on the couch, which was an absolute delight. <laughs> and I want to thank you, because I would the book could not have been the book if I hadn't found my grandfather's book, and for that, I will always be grateful. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate that, and I, I think it's a great reminder of you know, again, the need to translate this work so that we can, for those of us who don't read Yiddish, um, really understand what this culture was all about. It really has um, the ability and the capacity to inform us in ways we can yet to imagine. Yeah, I agree. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alice. Take care. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Tune In, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To subscribe to this and other podcasts, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. Our producer is Sarah Bleichfeld. I'm Lisa Newman. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon.